0: article caught my eye this week, um, titled, What Richard Sherman Can Teach Us About Brand Marketing. For those of you who don't know who Richard Sherman is, back in January in the NFC Championship game, the 49ers were making their approach to the end zone. There was 30 seconds left in the game. They were down by six. Colin Kaepernick, the quarterback for the 49ers, he makes a throw to the end zone, And the wide receiver, Michael Crabtree, looks like he's going to catch the ball. 49ers would win the game and go to the Super Bowl. But at the last moment, Richard Sherman, for the 49ers, tips the ball away, and the 49ers lose the game. The Seahawks go to the Super Bowl. Uh, But the reason for the article is what happened next. Uh, Richard Sherman was interviewed immediately after the game uh, by Aaron Andrews. And she asked him... About the play. And Richard Sherman. Uh, as loud as he could possibly say it. He was yelling in fact. With great intensity and hostility. Says I'm the best corner in the league. When you try me with a sorry receiver. Like Crabtree. That's the result you going to get. Don't you ever talk about me. And Andrews asked him who, who was talking about you. And he said Crabtree. Don't you open your mouth about the best, or I'm going to shut it for you real quick. Now, the initial reaction uh, to his words and his attitude were, were quite mixed. They weren't mixed with me, but they were mixed in the country. But it's turned out to be a marketing goldmine for him. In fact, they are saying that this rant is going to earn him $5 million in endorsements. Uh, This reminds us that what the world esteems as great is not what Jesus esteems as great. Why? Because the natural man, in his pride, esteems power. He esteems dominance. He esteems fame. And our world says that in order for you to be important, uh, you must be prosperous. You must be influential. Indeed, just being famous will do. Look at our, these shows that you see, these reality shows, these people who have no talent whatsoever, but who are just famous for being famous. And then they endorse products as if that brings some kind of credibility to the products. Christians are susceptible to this as well. Uh, for some time now, I would say all the way back to the 1950s, uh, churches and Christians have taken a great deal of effort in trying to appeal to the world, trying to to show the world that we are relevant to them. We, 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 we try to show that we're just as smart as they are. We, we go to the same places. We act like they do. We look like they do. We sound like they do. In fact, we are a whole lot different than them at all. And then you have this phenomenon where we are so impressed and so encouraged when some kind of celebrity, whether it be a politician or a singer or an actor or a musician, comes out and professes Christ. We're so excited about that as if God needs worldly success to bring credibility to His gospel. We've seen that in crusades for many decades where they bring celebrities on the stage as if Jesus just desperately needs a celebrity to bring credibility to Him. Michael Horton, in fact, in his book, Too Good to Be True, asks, Have you ever seen a janitor interviewed for his testimony? The reason we don't is that Christian janitors don't appeal uh, to our pride. They don't have the influence. They don't have the coolness. They don't appeal to that sinister pride. And that's why we need this text. We desperately need this text because pride is epidemic, even in the church. J.C. Riles says, thousands imagine that they're humble. They imagine that they're humble, but they cannot bear to see an equal, more honored are more favored than themselves. Few indeed can be found who rejoice heartily in a neighbor's promotion over their heads. And the fruit of that pride, that, that pride that he is speaking of here, are controlling passions, okay? It's controlling passions that seek um, something in the created order to, in order to serve that pride, in order to serve that name we so long for ourselves. In fact, James chapter 4 is very insightful here. In James chapter 4, James tells us, What causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Behind, James tells us, these quarrels and these fights and these wars, and behind even these murderous desires are controlling passions. Passions. And, and, and behind those controlling passions is pride. It's pride. That's what is behind all of these things that we see in this esteem for greatness. Indeed, the Puritan Richard Mayo says, Pride is a big-bellied sin. Most of the sins that are in the world are the offspring and issue of pride. And pride is fundamentally destructive. And it's so destructive, Jesus spends an enormous amount of time the night before he dies on the cross addressing it. Isn't that interesting? Of all the things he could be dealing with, he's dealing with the issue of pride. And we should take note of that. And we're going to see two expressions of that pride in our passage today in keeping with James chapter 4. The first, you see this man who is betraying Jesus. In other words, behind that betrayal is pride, this desire, this coveting that we looked at a few weeks ago. And it's going to rear its ugly head in this murderous desire as seen in Judas' betrayal of Jesus. But the other disciples are not immune to it as well, either. Because in their pride, you see this dispute, this desire um, for preeminence. They're arguing about who is the most preeminent one. Which one is the greatest? In both cases, it becomes very clear why the cross is necessary. Right? In both cases, we see why it was absolutely crucial that Jesus come and be crushed to death, treated like he was under the wrath of God treated as a sinner so that we, who are very much like these disciples, could have the forgiveness of sins. Now in review, as I said briefly, there's a Lord's Supper here that He's transformed from the Passover meal. And right at the end of this Passover meal that He's transformed to the Lord's Supper, He speaks about the covenant, the new covenant of His blood that the cup represents. And then He says in verse 21, But behold... The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Now, we already know this, don't we? Earlier in chapter 22, we saw that the devil has possessed Judas, and now he's going to uh, devise a plan with the religious leaders uh, to betray Jesus and have him put to death. But we're not the only ones who are aware of this. Jesus is aware of it uh, as well. In fact, early in his ministry, in John chapter 6... Here's what Jesus, it says about Jesus in verse 64. Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. He knew from the very beginning. Now think about it. He he prayed all night before he called the disciples. And then when he called the disciples to himself, he knew the very one who was going to betray him. He was calling one who would betray him to himself to follow him as a disciple. But remarkably, even this evil is a part of God's plan. All right? We need to understand that. Uh, This is part of God's counterplot. God is sovereign over all things, including evil. Now notice in verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Isn't that an interesting word? The Son of Man goes... As it has been determined. What does that word determined mean? It means determined. It means ordained. It doesn't mean anything else. If we try to make it mean anything else, then we're playing with Scripture. We're not under authority of Scripture. We're placing the Scripture under our authority. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. It's been planned. God has decreed it, God has planned it, God has purposed it. In fact, this very word, this same word here for determined is found in Acts chapter 2 verse 23 where it says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. That word definite plan is the same word that we find here, orizo. Jesus is reminding his twelve that over the next few days it's going to get very dark. It's going to be very dark. It's going to look hopeless. The one that they have walked with for three years is about to be put to death. He's going to be buried in a borrowed tomb. And he is reminding them this is part of God's plan. In other words, when it gets really dark, God is still reigning. God is still in control, and we can take note of that as well when we go through those dark times. Even when we reach our lowest point, God is still reigning. He is still sovereign, and he's telling us here that the cross is not plan B. I mean, I've heard it communicated that way. I've heard people say that the church was plan B because plan A didn't work. I've heard preachers use the language of football where God comes to the line of scrimmage and he doesn't like what he sees and so he calls an audible at the line of scrimmage and that's the church. The church is not plan B. Uh, the, the, The church is plan A, okay? And the cross is not plan B The cross is plan A. And I would venture to say, because Revelation 13 says, verse 8, that He is the Lamb slain before the creation, before the foundation of the world, I would say that the purpose of creation itself is a crucified and resurrected Messiah. He is the plan of the ages. And yet, even though God is sovereign, even though God is in control... And He has ordained the cross. It does not minimize the evil. Indeed, God hates evil. Notice in the second part of verse 22. He says, The Son of Man goes as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas is still culpable For his sin. God is sovereign in the cross and Judas is culpable. God's sovereignty does not diminish human responsibility. Human responsibility does not diminish God's sovereignty. Now I want you to think about it a moment. If God's sovereignty is minimized here because human culpability is very clear in the text all right, it makes the cross an unfortunate accident in history, okay? And so if God is not sovereign in the cross because Jesus is clearly laying responsibility upon Judas for the cross, then it makes the cross an unfortunate accident in history, all right? And so we cannot minimize divine sovereignty here. Having said that, If human responsibility is minimized because of God's sovereignty in the cross, it makes the cross unnecessary. You see my point? On one end, it makes the cross an unfortunate accident. On the other end, it makes the cross unnecessary if human responsibility is annulled because of divine sovereignty. In fact, Culpability is very clear. If you look in other texts, Mark's account, Mark 14 and Matthew's account, Matthew 26 says, it would have been better if Judas had not been born. That's Jesus' own words. It would have been better if Judas had not been born. Judas is not a believer. He is not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of those clear examples and there are numerous examples where you have God's sovereignty and human responsibility who stand. They stand side by side and they are compatible with one another. But the Bible never explains the mystery. We just bow to the mystery. That's what we do. We bow to the mystery recognizing that God is sovereign over everything. There is no one... There's not one aspect of our lives that God is not sovereign over. He's even sovereign over the most heinous evil in the history of the world. That means He's sovereign over your circumstances in your present lives. And He is sovereign and you are responsible. And those two truths stand side by side and they are compatible. They do not conflict with one another. And this provides a discussion, uh, this very issue that's uh, going to lead to, a let's just say, a default debate that disciples have about greatness. Notice in verse 23, and they began to question one another. Jesus just said that, woe to the one who's going to betray me. They began to question one another which of them it could be. Figure, there's some finger pointing there. Who was going to do this? Of course, Matthew tells us they were asking the question, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Which I find quite interesting. And they're horrified at the thought that someone betrayed Jesus. Yet it seems that they suspect in their own hearts the capacity to do this very thing. That's why they would ask that question. I think they fear their own worst tendencies. They know their hearts. They know what they think. They know their motives. They know that even when they are doing things that look really spiritual, even when they're doing things that look like they're honoring God, for three years, in many ways, they've been serving themselves. In fact, in the next few hours... Judas is going to show up with the soldiers and they're going to arrest Jesus. And nine of them are going to flee. Peter will remain with him for a time and then it's going to get really hot for Peter and he's going to end up denying him three times. The only one who's going to remain with him is John. And so they suspect their own tendencies here. By the way, that's why Jesus had to die. That's why he had to be crushed to death because truth be told, we all have that same capacity, don't we? We all have that capacity to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Both godly and godless impulses course through our veins. A few years ago, I was at the Masters. It reminds me, the Masters this week's coming up and, and I was in the Masters about 1994 and I was at this big luncheon for this company And I was asked to pray. It was Easter Sunday. And I was asked to pray over the brunch. And then we were going to eat the brunch and go to the the course and watch the masters. And the person who was kind of heading up things said, I want you to to pray, but I don't want you to pray in Jesus' name. Because there's a lot of Jewish people here and secular people here. And I don't want to offend them. And so I prayed. And I did not pray in Jesus' name. I prayed a generic prayer to a generic God. It's the spirit of these disciples here who have such a tendency to betray Jesus. Now, there was some conviction there, but it, I didn't really get convicted till the end of the Masters when a man named Bernard Longer won it who was a committed believer. He won the Masters. And the CBS is sticking the, the camera in his, in his face He said, before I say anything, the most important thing about this day is not that I won the Masters. But today is the day we celebrate every year that Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, has been raised from the grave. And I could hear the rooster crow. (laughs) But the fact is, we've all been there to some degree. We deny our Savior out of the fear of man, out of pride, out of sin. And that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need a cross. That's why we need someone who's going to come and receive and, and experience the wrath of God on sin in our place. Jesus is proving that very point at this point. We need redemption not only, though, from sin's penalty. We need redemption from sin's power the power, the proclivity to sin. And again, note from this discussion, there's no indication that any of the disciples suspect Judas. Is it I, Lord? They have no clue. He looks like one of them. It's scary how we can be fooled by outward appearances. Adam Holland, one of our former members who's moved on to to. Knoxville, I taught him at Boyce, and he he texted me this week about another one of his old classmates that I taught who's just denounced the faith and has become a practicing unrepentant homosexual and there's been several of those from those early years. We haven't seen it as much at Boyce recently praise God for that, but especially uh, in the early years when I was teaching, we've seen many of these young men who they had all the earmarks of the new birth. Men, they loved the Bible. They loved theology. They loved to talk about these things. And all the while, they were unregenerate charlatans just like Judas. Just like Judas. Judas was a charlatan, and they didn't even see that coming they didn't expect it no sooner does jesus raise this issue than the disciples really make it about them notice in verse 24 this really the conversation they just had is what raises this dispute a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest bunch of Richard Shermans in the group. Disciples following Jesus. I don't think they had the audacity to say it that forthrightly. I'm the greatest. The original Muhammad Ali's. I don't think it was that overt. I think it would have been much more subtle than that. We, We religious people have a much more subtle way of promoting our own greatness, don't we? But whatever the exact things that were being said... You have this elevation of self. Why do we do that? I was thinking about this last night. Well, you think about the great needs we have. Really, God birth needs. We have our hearts uh, have these needs, and what are the needs? Approval, acceptance, admiration, and affection from others. Those are really our great needs. That's what drives us. Approval, acceptance, admiration, and affection from others. We have those needs because God has placed them there. Here's the problem. He has placed them there so that we find these things in Him. But when we go rogue and become idolaters, we begin to look to these things or look for these things at the, in the horizontal plane. We look to it from others. We try to to receive approval from others. We try to be accepted from others. We we try to be admired by others. We try to get our affection from others. And in so doing, we have to promote ourselves because that's performance-based. That's works-based. It's completely conditional. That's why this desire to be great. And this wasn't the first time These disciples have had this discussion. You remember back in chapter 9? Listen to these words. See if they sound familiar. Chapter 9, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. So this is a common debate. This is a common discussion among the disciples. And that discussion arose right after Jesus twice said that he was going to be delivered over and suffer at the hands of men, that he was going to die. And then there was the time James and John's mom. Remember this, Matthew 20? James and John's mom asked Jesus if they could sit on the right and the left of him in the kingdom. The other ten got really irritated at that. Why? Because they wanted (laughs) their place at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. And then there was the time when Jesus asked the twelve, Mark chapter 9, He asked the 12 what they had been talking about. In chapter 9, verse 34 of Mark, it says, They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. It's a common discussion among these guys. So this was not new, and it's epidemic with us. It really is. We desire to be great. We desire to be superior. We desire to be esteemed. This reasoning has not gone away. You know, whenever you seek to find your identity outside of Jesus, this is when this happens. All right, think about that. In our pride, we seek admiration, okay? We seek applause. We seek esteem. We seek praise, don't we? And when we don't get it, what happens? Despair and frustration. That's one of the leading causes of despair. We desire this acceptance, this approval, this admiration, affection, and we don't get it because people are fickle. People are conditional. People are performance and works based. And if we're not performing the way we should, we will not receive these things. And so, uh, think about this. If your desire, if your controlling passion is to be esteemed as a parent, all right, you want people to reverence you and esteem you as a parent. If someone corrects you as a parent, what does that do? Set you off. Or if someone else is revered over you as a parent, you become very disenchanted, bitter, critical towards that person. And this applies to everything. It applies to our work. If you find your identity in your work or your, your income and you find someone makes more than you, you become jealous of that person. You become, you have animosity towards that person. It could be, for me, it was in sports. It could be ministry. If you find your identity in being a great Bible teacher, a great preacher, and then someone stands up who preaches better than you, instead of celebrating the glory of God in that, you get jealous. That's because you're seeking your approval, you're seeking your admiration... You're seeking affection on the horizontal plane and not the vertical plane. Your identity is set on an idol, not the true and living God. The problem with this is it's sub-Christian. It's a sub-Christian view of greatness. We need to understand that, and that's why Jesus is taking this on. Notice in verse 25. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. He's equating this mentality to these Gentile kings. Um, The Gentiles who were people at this time who were foreigners to the covenant without hope and without God in this world. That's Ephesians chapter 2. And their understanding of greatness was like what we see often today in our culture. Their understanding of greatness was this idea that you are are powerful, you are wealthy, you are famous. And that mentality is epidemic today. In fact, I read this week about a study done at Harvard by the MBA students there. Um, They were assigned to create this strategic plan entitled, What Do I Hope to Achieve in Life After graduation, MBA graduates at Harvard, their number one priority, that they want to achieve wealth. Number two, notoriety. And number three, status. And none of those students said anything about serving others. Not one thing about serving others. And in that day, it was epitomized in the kings, the kings of the Gentiles. Uh, The ancient Near Eastern kings exercised total authority, total lordship over their subjects. They would take these exalted titles, and they would even claim to be God, and they considered themselves the benefactors. Now, what is a benefactor? Well, a benefactor was someone who bestowed gifts on his subjects, all right? Uh, someone who 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 gave his subjects these great gifts financial uh, you know benefits whatever it may be in order to gain loyalty and praise i'm glad our government's not that way today in other words even the benevolence of the proud is self-serving benevolence you're doing it in order to receive something back from the one you're serving. This is proud. And Jesus is showing his disciples. That their egos. Their pride is worldly. It's even pagan. It's reminiscent of the pagan kings. But notice in verse 26. But not so with you. This cannot be the way of the true disciple. Rather let the greatest among you. Become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. That word serves is the word diaconon. What does that sound like to you? It's where we get the word deacon. Um, some equivalent to this word, whether it's be serve or servant or service, occurs over ninety times in the New Testament. You think it's important? It's only twenty seven books. Occurs over ninety times. Jesus is redefining greatness. It's not about making a name for yourself. Because even if you make a name for yourself, it has a uh, termination date on it, doesn't it? How many of you can remember the MVP of Super Bowl X? You can't. And probably the parents of the guy who won it can't remember. All right? Um, He is redefining greatness. Greatness. J.C. Ryle argues that the hero in Christ's army is not the man of rank and title and dignity and chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before them. It's the man who looks not on his own things, but the things of others. And then Jesus proves his point by giving them the supreme example. Verse 27, for who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? He's speaking of himself. This is an implied affirmation of his greatness. It's a very humble way of saying it because Jesus typically relied upon the Father and the Holy Spirit to to reveal his greatness. He says, but I am among you as one who serves. Jesus looks around at those fumbling and bumbling knuckleheads and says, this is why I'm here. You have no clue what greatness is. My concern is that we don't have a clue what greatness is either in the church today. Look at what we esteem. If you go to a conference, you will never see a small country church preacher on the docket. It's going to be the megachurch preachers, okay? That's the way it operates. That's the way it is. We need to be taught by this passage. Jesus says, I'm here as the example of service. Jesus is infinitely great. He's the one that deserves to be served. But even on that very night, what has he done? John 13 tells us. Luke's account doesn't, but John does. The reason Luke wouldn't tell us is because John's already told us. We don't need uh, the same exact details He has washed their stinking, nasty feet. He says, this is the kind of Messiah, this is the kind of Savior I am. And keep in mind, there's a lot given to us about Jesus' earthly ministry because from the very beginning in the Old Testament on to the New, one of the real uh, reasons that the Scripture gives us something about the nature of God is because we, as the image of God, are called to imitate Him. In Latin, it's the immatio Dei, the imitation of God, okay? As God's image bearers, we are to reflect His character. In fact, if you want to see something really interesting, in Psalm 111, you have all these attributes of God. And then in Psalm 112, it describes the God-fearer, the believer, with the same kind of attributes. In other words, we are called to imitate God. Be imitators of God, mimiti, that's the word, mimic. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as in Christ God has loved us. And he gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's how we are to imitate him. And he is giving himself an example here. And yet, an example is not enough. It's not enough at all. That's why we would need the cross. But keep in mind here, he is not calling us to serve in order that you could be great. If that's the case, then you're serving for yourself. You're not really serving God, you're serving yourself. He is saying service is the greatness. So when no one knows what you're doing at Fisherville to serve this church... That's okay. In fact, it may be a grace no one knows. Because if they do know, it may be feeding your pride. It's a grace that no one knows what you're doing to serve Fisherville Church. It's a grace that no one knows that you're sharing the gospel to your neighbor. It's a grace that no one knows that you wrote a larger check than normal. You sacrificed so that you could give to the missions ministry here. It's a grace that no one knows because what God is doing in you, He is making you a servant. He is chastening your prideful and selfish ambitions. One of the real evidences that people are prideful is when they serve the church and no one notices and they get angry. And that reveals I'm not really serving the church, I'm serving myself. And no one seems to care. Jesus is taking this on. Listen to what Leon Moore says. He says, Jesus is not saying that if his followers wish to rise to great heights in the church today, they must first prove themselves in a lowly place. No. He is saying that faithful service in the lowly place is itself true greatness. I mean, that's just so upside down to the way we think. Jesus is our example to that. He made Himself of no reputation, took the form of a servant, came in the likeness of man. And as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He's our example, but unless your heart's changed, a mere example's not enough. I can show you example after example, but unless your heart is changed, it is not enough. took my boys to see the Braves and the Brewers this week. We drove up to... uh, Milwaukee. And um, we made it a day. Drove up, got up. Man, it was a long day. Um, Wonderful day. But you know what? All these great major league players, just world-class athletes out on the field, they're great examples of how to play the game. But unless my boys have the ability, they can't follow their example. I can give them example after example. They're not going to follow the examples of these athletes. And in the same way, Jesus is our example, but unless you have the moral ability to follow him, you will never follow him. That's why you don't serve like Jesus. That's why you want a great name. That's why you have a a wrong definition of greatness. And that's why he came not mainly as an example. He came to die. He came to die. He came to be crushed, For sinners like us who have such a Babel instinct. You know what a Babel instinct is? You remember Babel, Genesis 11? What happened at Babel? They wanted to make a name for themselves. So God judged them. Because we were created for His name, not our name. And we have that instinct. I have that instinct. I want to make a name for myself. I want to make my mark. And that is insurrection. I am seeking to steal God's glory. And take it in for myself. And that's why he died. Jesus died taking my vanity and receiving God's judgment for my vanity, my pride, my arrogance, my desire for a name that only belongs to God himself. Now notice how Jesus ends this text. It's a remarkable thing because... Typically, when we try to encourage one another, we don't go eschatological, if you will. Jesus, and most often all the Bible writers, when they are encouraging us to persevere, when they're encouraging us, they go eschatological. In other words, they speak about the things that we will experience in eternity. Because that's where ultimate reality resides. Notice... In verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. That's remarkable. I mean, uh, because that very night, 10 of them are going to depart. One's already betrayed him, and the other one is going to deny him. And yet, you see Jesus focusing not on their faults, he's focusing on their graces. That's a parenting point, by the way. That's a good parenting point for all of us and grandparenting point. Sometimes I, I too focus on my children's faults rather than focusing on the graces that are evident in their lives, he is encouraging them here, even though he knows what they're about to do. That's quite remarkable. You're those who have stayed with me. What trials? All the trials of his ministry. In fact, John chapter 6 tells us many walked away from him. But the disciples stayed with him. Peter said, where will we go? Because we, in you, uh, we have the words of eternal life. And he encourages them in that way. And then he noticed how he ends this with the hope. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now the term "assign" there is the word where we get the word covenant. He's already spoken about the covenant, the new covenant in chapter, uh, verse 20. And here he's saying, I covenant with you. I covenant to you as my Father covenanted to me a kingdom. Why doesn't these kind of hopes encourage us? Because our affections are too set on temporal things, temporal vanities. We should be encouraged by the things that Jesus intends to encourage us by. Notice he says, you will eat and drink at my table. Now keep in mind, these promises are directly related to the apostles because... Uh, the The apostles themselves, the faithful ones, will sit on the thrones with Jesus and judge all the peoples, okay, but we play a role in that. we get to experience that in a secondary way. First Corinthians chapter six makes that very clear, but these promises are first and foremost to the disciples. But he does say we will eat and drink at his table in the kingdom. This is the messianic banquet. This is where ultimate reality is found. This is where our hope is found. We're going to commune for all eternity with the living Christ. And if that doesn't stir you, maybe you don't desire that as much as you should. Communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this is the reason you should persevere. It's going to get very difficult in the next few days, the next few years. But persevere in hope. This is where reality is headed. And this is a promise that we have ourselves. And he says that's where true greatness lies. In fact, living in light of that hope, serving in this day, not trying to make a name for yourselves because one day you're going to have a name. That name is going to be son and daughter of the living God, joint heir with Jesus Christ. In other words, just kind of defer your hopes. Transfer them to me. Because if you're looking to greatness in this present order, you will be enslaved. You'll always be trying to do more and more to find significance. Have you ever been there? To find... um, some way to make your mark. And boy, it's enslaving, isn't it? Because you can't do enough. People are so conditional. People are so fickle. Last time I checked, they were wanting John Calipari's head. And now he could run for mayor in Lexington. Now, if he loses tomorrow, and I'm not saying he is, I think they'll win. They'll want his head again. It's the way it is. Why would we look for greatness on the horizontal plane? That is absolutely foolish. Our greatness resides in where we're headed. And our greatness resides now in serving. In imitation to the one who served us so greatly. in coming to die for us. Being treated like a criminal. Being shamed on a Roman cross. Virtually naked on that cross. Crying out in agony. When for all eternity he was adored by God the Father, God the Spirit. He was worshipped by the angels. And here he is, dying in agony for people like us who don't even love him. That's true greatness. And that's where our greatness lies. is serving like our king. Laying down our rights so that others can know him in that way. Let's pray.